Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, consumer-oriented, value-based healthcare. Folks, the uh, views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Our focus today is uh, on one of the most critically important and uh, rapidly advancing issues in healthcare today with wide and deep, deep impact on our health, on our salaries and benefits, and the health of our communities and our economy. And that's the issue of employer-based healthcare. Employers pay a significant percentage of the over uh, $3 trillion annual healthcare bills in this country. It's been cited as one of the major challenges facing corporate America today and one of the major reasons for wage stagnation in this country. Warren Buffett has for years been calling American healthcare the hungry tapeworm of corporate America, uh, pointing out the high and the continuously rising cost, as well as the uh, paucity of uh, outcomes and value for the uh, cost. So as a result of this, uh, employers have been uh, aggressively taking action, joining coalitions, hiring external consultants to assist them, working with third-party administrators to adopt wellness, chronic disease management programs, and so on. Of course, the latest and very public stance that's been taken by employers is the company that's been formed by Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan, uh, the company that uh, hired uh, Atul Gawande, the noted Harvard surgeon, author, and a poly ex policy expert to be their CEO, and to really uh, go after this issue of the rising costs and the low value proposition in employee health care. And so, of course, uh, these employer pressures are being felt uh, and being responded to on the provider side and the payer side, there's a lot of activity amongst integrated delivery networks, hospital systems, and ambulatory provider group groups, as well as the payers, looking for ways to appropriately reduce healthcare costs, to reduce unnecessary utilization, uh, and to create pathways, uh, care pathways that provide more effective and efficient care, reduce, again, unnecessary hospital admissions, readmissions, and emergency room visits, and really create alternative models of care, like virtual care options, care management programs, et cetera, home health care. So uh, we have, uh, as many of the listeners will recall on this podcast, we've had some wonderful guests uh, who have helped to define some of these uh, problems, uh, experts who are not just identifying the problem, but also generating solutions. People like Al Lewis, uh, Josh Luke, who is an ex-CEO in nursing homes and hospital systems and now has devoted himself to uh, really uh, educating families, individuals and families and employees as, uh, about uh, how to reduce the costs of, uh, of health care. Rob Andrews, uh, an ex-senator who's now the CEO of the Health Transformation Alliance uh, Coalition. We've had Glenn Steele, the ex-CEO of Geisinger, who's now working with Rob Andrews and doing other things as well in this domain, and uh, Dave Chase, who's formed the Rosetta Health. And so now today, we are incredibly fortunate to have another uh, experienced expert uh, on the show. And uh, I have to say, this is uh, Dave Contorno. And uh, one of the things about Dave, um, which I, I do have to say, even before telling you a little bit about him, 
is that when I speak to all these other experts, whether it be uh, Dave Chase um, or, or uh, uh, Josh Luke or Al Lewis, and I ask them the question, who should I speak to about the employee benefits area and employee health? And they all give me the same answer, uh, Dave Contorno. So I'm in, I feel incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with Dave. Uh, Dave is an employee benefits consultant and business manager with uh, strong community service ties. He's got a career that uh, spans more than 20 years. He's highly experienced uh, and an industry trendsetter uh, in the health insurance industry with uh, tremendous uh, practical understanding of uh, career-provided relationships, actuarial impact, plan fundamentals, and really some cutting-edge design techniques. And um, I'm going to I'm going to really let uh, Dave, in the course of our conversation, tell you a bit about his career and what he's learned, experienced, and um, why he's doing what he's doing now. And uh, I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from speaking to him. So, Dave, uh, welcome to. To creating a new healthcare. How are you? I am doing well, Zev. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and frankly, honored to be among, uh, not only among the company of some of the, the previous guests that you've had, but uh, specifically mentioned by some of them. But some of them in particular, I, I, I'm, I call friends and mentors, and I'm honored to be in the same company as them, like Dave and Al, um, among others, and Josh too. Yeah, no, these are, uh, I would agree with you. These are, uh, real experts and, you know, and, and more than that, um, they're, you know, what's really common, I think, to all of you, yourself included, is, is clearly the expertise and the experience, um, uh, and the knowledge, uh, uh, and, and the connections in this field. But, but more for me is, uh, as well is you all have one thing in common, which is, You've all kind of shifted your career based on your experience, what you've learned. Uh, you, you're all highly data driven and, um, and you've made a real inflection in what you're doing. Um, and you've decided to be all of you to be incredibly mission driven, um, and to stand out and, you know, stand up and, and step out and, and really try to make a positive difference in this area, which is so critically important to, you know, to every single individual and every single family, anyone who's, uh, you know, uh, has any sort of employment. Um, I mean, you know, I think I was reading and, and it might have been, in, in fact, in one of your pieces that um, uh, that healthcare costs continue to be um, the number one uh, reason for individual and family bankruptcy. And uh, the numbers are actually quite startling. And um, I just came across that in the last uh, day or two. I mean, I've known about this, but it's just, uh, it's just, it's something that's so important to each and every one of us. And so, um, you know, I just, uh, I take my hat off to you guys for uh, for you and, and your colleagues who are, are really trying to make a difference in, in this industry. So, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, and one, um, I'll add one stat to that bankruptcy statistic you just threw out there, which I think is hits at home. Uh, almost three quarters of the people that file for bankruptcy in the U S because of medical bills had health insurance. Wow. So if health insurance is not protecting us from bankruptcy, <clears throat> what is it doing for us exactly? What, um, you know, I, I, uh, I want to ask you, you know, really, you know, kind of what, what got you into this and, and, and why, but that, that, that statistic is startling, right? I mean, that's just, um, it's hard to, to wrap your head around that, um, what this means to individuals and families. It's even worse than that, in my opinion. I mean, first of all, the average out of pocket in the U.S. is $5,000 for an individual. The average savings account is under $1,000. So that math right there tells you why it is. But the problem really becomes those 
really high out-of-pockets combined with the complete impossibility of getting accurate pre-service pricing and quality data has led to a rationing of care in this country um, for a unique reason. I mean, we ration care because we literally can't afford it, whereas most other countries don't have the care available to them in many cases. But and, and if you look at the data over the last three years, you'll actually see that consumption of care in the U.S. as a unit is down for the first time in, in at least my career. But the total increase in spend is the same as it was before that, because all that the facilities and the drug companies are doing is just raising the unit cost, which is one of the many reasons why I'm very aligned with Al Lewis in saying wellness programs are not there's no ROI on wellness programs. They just don't exist. If you are a good employer and you want to do good things for your employees and give them access to programs that can help them be healthier when and if they want, great. But it's typically sold as a cost-saving measure. And again, I think the statistics, back to data-driven, uh, 72% of companies have a wellness program. But I promise you, there's not 72% of companies in this country that are happy with their health insurance or healthcare costs. So... That doesn't work either because all that tries to do is address the quantity issue, but we're all going to consume care whether we're healthy or not. Um, so that doesn't really seem to address the issue either. Um, the one foundational – there's two foundational things I think that would be germane to laying out there early on in the conversation um, to set the tone for, for how this goes on is, number one, you said something I think in your opening line about bold solutions. Now – Everything I'm going to talk about, if you think about it just within the context of healthcare, is going to seem bold. I agree. However, if you think about it in the context of literally every single other service or good that you buy, not only is it not bold, but you likely wouldn't buy from a vendor or a service provider or a manufacturer who didn't allow you to do those things. And so it's bold, but only in a very narrow sense. And, and we're doing things like it all the time. And, and the best example, it, this occurred yesterday when I was in Boston with a prospect. I was trying to tell them the value of getting rid of the PPO network and how much savings, flexibility, and better access to care that that can bring. And they were having trouble grasping how they can access a doctor without them being part of a network. And so my question to the people in the room was, what network of clothing stores were you required to go to to buy the shirt you're wearing? Or what network of car dealerships did you have to ask Geico who you could go to to buy a car? And did they then tell you what kind of car you could buy, how much you were going to pay, what options you were going to get? Hmm. We don't use a network anywhere else. It's actually absurd to think that Geico would force us somewhere to buy a car. Mm -hmm. So why is it then that we allow Blue Cross to tell us where we can go see a doctor? And more importantly, they tell the doctor what the doctor can do and what they can treat and what drugs they can prescribe. Um, or essentially, that's what they tell them by paying for it. So we have, um, and I've been using this a lot lately, we have Stockholm Syndrome in this country with the large carriers. And it's across the whole board. It's brokers. They're very well paid to continue the status quo and not look behind the curtains. Doctors have Stockholm syndrome, yeah, even hospitals. I got into a little bit of a battle over an ER visit with a, a local big hospital by us. And um, they they assured me that they had very strong clinical guidelines around coding emergency room departments for the level coding. And when I dug in and pushed them for it, I found out they use a service to do this called Optum 360. 
which if anyone's in the health insurance world knows that Optum is owned by United Healthcare. So they're using United Healthcare to set the coding of the emergency room visit to determine how much United Healthcare is then going to pay them. It's absurd. It's, it's total Stockholm syndrome. So, hmm. uh, and employers and employees have it too. And I think the reason employees slash patients have it is because we have, again, and it, it, it feeds into the Stockholm syndrome. We in this country think that health insurance and health care are one and the same thing. And so people think erroneously that if we change our health insurance, we're also changing our access to care. But again, another car analogy I'll use is if you switch from Geico to Allstate, does anything change about your car? Nothing. So when you switch from Blue Cross to even some no-name whatever, your doctor hasn't changed. The care that they're going to give you hasn't mm-hmm. changed. So breaking that out, um, not thinking of these things as bold because they're not in other areas and understanding that um, we need to break ourselves free of this control that we've given to these entities who really make all of who make more money as costs go up and quality goes down. And that's why we have a system in which costs are going up and quality is going down. So, you know, first of all, uh, you know, you mentioned the Stockholm syndrome. So this is this idea that um, uh, there's there's sort of a bizarre relationship that forms between let's uh you know captors and 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 those who are held captive uh like hostages and whatnot it's and it's a phenomena that's that's been described and written about and so um how are you in in more explicit terms how are you adapting that to this what's the you know there's there's a a uh a, a commentary about the nature of the uh the bizarre uh nature of the relationships that stakeholders have in healthcare. And could you say, could you say something about that? Cause I, I find it, I, I will tell you that as I've been really exploring this in depth, and again, I've been in healthcare for a long, long time, but um, even being in healthcare, the relationships is particularly, you know, when you're talking about payment and payers and employers, and then you've got all kinds of other folks in the mix, um, you know, they're so opaque and, and unless you really are astute, unless you're really steeped in it, and and quite honestly, I think a lot of people have blinders on, but you know, it's really hard to know what's going on. And and you know, again, I've I've been reading about this, and it's just it's it's mind blowing each time you learn something new. It's like how can that be? So just uh, you know, just a little bit more commentary on on the nature of the relationships as you and I you, I know you're getting into it. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's only complicated and difficult because that's the way the system wants it to be. Um, they benefit from that. They do, they put a lot of effort and a lot of energy into maintaining that. For example, every PPO contract with every provider has a gag clause in it. It doesn't allow them to share that what that contract is or talk about it. That in and of itself. So think about that. Just the nature of a PPO contract, right? The agreement between the insurance carrier or the network and, and the, the provider, um, is done in secret. It's done backdoor and it's done between two entities, both of whom have no skin in the game and make more money as costs go up. And it seems illogical to me that that is how we would set pricing in healthcare, but yet, that is how at least 50% of our healthcare pricing is set in this country. So the Stockholm syndrome that I see is, is, um, there was a Henry Ford quote that said, uh, you know, if, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. 
And if you ask employers what they want, they say, I want my Blue Cross and Blue Shield plan to cost less money. Well, I can't accomplish that, right? Because Blue Cross and Blue Shield not only controls that, but they want the cost to go up. So we need to break them of that, whatever that pull is to, to thinking that either you need to have a carrier or, or, or thinking that the carriers are doing a good job. But again, it boggles my mind that we can think that because the last 20 years show clearly that they're not doing a good job. Uh, so we need to break them of that. And, and it's that to me, the first step is that fundamental underpinning that health insurance and health care are two very different things. And when we talk about health care, we say that there are three stakeholders that we care about, and that's it. There's the payer, which, Zev, if I didn't say this um, in this podcast, then anyone who knows me would would probably chastise me. But I do not call the carriers the payer. I know in your world and in the and certainly in the hospital world, that's how you refer to them. But they're not the payer. The, the payer is the employer and the employees in that space. Um, I think it's disingenuous to call them the payer. And I think it actually allows hospitals and doctors to feel less guilty about taking advantage of them. When you all of a sudden say, wait a second, this isn't Blue Cross paying it. It's the patient that I'm looking at right now, whether it's indirectly or not. I think it puts more onus on the provider to care about the damage that they may do financially, which mostly is done with their pen more than anything mm -hmm. else. How they code it, how they chart it, how they submit the claim has more to do with the cost than, and, than what actually needs to get done. And so I, I want to break people of that, that thinking. And, and mm -hmm. I, I would liken calling a carrier a payer to calling your accountant the payer of your taxes. They just tell you who to pay and how much. You foot the bill. And that's the same thing in in a in in healthcare, in my opinion. Certainly in the in the commercial employer world. Mm -hmm. um, so, where we see the Stockholm syndrome manifest is that employers think that they shouldn't get involved in their employees' healthcare, so they they should outsource it, and they think that they need to outsource it to a name that their employees know and trust. And again, they forget they think they're outsourcing healthcare. They're not. They're outsourcing health insurance. It's very different, um, and. I argue that employers not only have the right to tell their employees where to go for healthcare, but they have the legal, moral, and ethical obligation to do so. Because when Blue Cross and Blue Shield unite, I, I don't want to pick on just Blue Cross. I'll pick on, try and spread it around. When Aetna goes to the market, one of the things they have to say is we have a broad network of providers and doctors and hospitals. And the reality is, is the broader the network, the more bad doctors and hospitals are mm -hmm. in that network. And when bad also tends to cost more money, you're harming not only that employee, but you're also harming the entire company, every other employee, any owners of the company. I mean, it, it extends and it ripples out. And so... If an employer put the right pieces in place to say, um, we are going to get the right people with the right incentives, and, and I think it's a good segue into what we spoke about earlier around my shift mm -hmm. uh, in, in the career. But when you start to align the incentives, everything changes um, and becomes so much more clear, at least to me. And are you... Dave, are you saying so? You're saying that the employer, let me say, who has the responsibility to? Are you saying someone has the responsibility? Employers have the responsibility to, to select employer. Employer. The employer has the responsibility to make sure that 
the right pieces are in place mm-hmm. to make sure that their employees are getting the best care possible at the lowest cost. They have an ethical and moral obligation to make sure they get the best care. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a legal obligation to every other participant of that plan to make sure it's the lowest cost. Luckily, those two things go hand in hand right. in our healthcare system, right. typically. Right. Um, but that they have that obligation. ERISA says they have that obligation. Right. So, so you're, you know, what you said so far for me is going to elicit a number of questions about this idea of, I mean, are you talking about, again, a, a, a narrow or contained network of providers that the employer selects based on, you know, on, on data and outcomes and costs? Are you, uh, you mentioned earlier this issue that um, uh, uh, utilization of healthcare has gone down, but we're not seeing uh, the the costs going down or the the spending going down. And so, um, you know, this this idea of the high deductible health plan are you are you making a commentary on that? So, just a number of questions that you know, as you've been talking, have been coming up for me. And so, I'll definitely you know I'll, I'll come back to them. Um, but I do I do think it would be helpful. We could do it now or do it later in the conversation, kind of your story and, and specifically what you saw as you were, you know, kind of growing up and maturing in this industry, what you were doing. And, you know, again, this article you wrote um, in uh, in the uh, Benefits Pro magazine, uh, the article you wrote was in November of 2017, I believe. Uh, it, it was called, just this past November, um, it was called My Ethical Dilemma. And so, uh, so do you want to, do you want to pick up on that? Sure. So, um, you know, it's funny, I am still not the average, uh, insurance broker. They, I'm 41 years old at this point. I've been doing this for 24 years, so you can do the math. I started relatively young, uh, but I am still on the younger side of my industry. And I think that that's important, not because, um, it, it just, it speaks to a mindset that's very hard to change. Um, it's a, old white guys club, my industry. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's evident everywhere I go. And it, I think that speaks to just a, maybe it's a little bit of a stereotype, but, but they're not the most innovative and, and change tolerance people. Um, I think so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it was the fact that I was younger. Maybe it was the fact that I've been an, an entrepreneur my whole life and always willing and, and, and able and easy to take risks. Um, I don't know, but, but, what I saw about six or seven years ago was, um, and I'll tell you the story real quick. I mean, I, I again, we are overpaid in my industry. Um, and, um, you know, as a result, I, I drive a nice car. And as a matter of fact, I, I even have a driver on staff who, who gets me to and from appointments so that I can get work done in between. And, and the only reason I bring that up is because uh, in this uh, incident that occurred, I pulled up to a, a, a lumber manufacturer in rural North Carolina. I mean, somewhere between uh, Hickory and Asheville. And it was a lumber manufacturer. So very blue collar crowd. And one of my salespeople had gone in and moved them from a very rich Blue Cross PPO to a very lean United Healthcare HMO. And you're going to have changes, especially on the pharmacy side. And there was a lot of issues around coverage. And so I go in, pull in in my black car. I get out of the back seat of said black car to go in to try and figure out what's going on and really to save the account is what I was doing. I didn't want to lose the revenue tied to it. And I sit down with with a couple of women who had stacks of bills and invoices to try and figure out what the root cause of the problem was. And 
there's a guy who sits down at the head of the table but doesn't say a word until I'm done with those two women. And I turn to him and say, how can I help you, sir? And he says, um, I hope I can use a mild curse word. He says, don't blow smoke up my ass. And I said, excuse me? And he said, don't blow smoke up my ass. I saw you pull in here in your six-figure car with your driver. Meanwhile, my wife is at home writhing in pain because we can no longer afford her multiple sclerosis medication. And he actually got in my face. Like literally the CFO had to get between us. And it was a, it hammered home something. And the, the thought that occurred to me as I left there, because I was, I was very shooken up by that event. Um, I don't like when people get confrontational uh, in that manner. I love debates, love spirited debates, especially data back debates, but this was just raw. This was, there was something there that was different. This guy was angry and he was angry at me. And as I walked out of that meeting, it occurred to me that there's kind of this line in the sand. And on one side of that line are the entities and people that benefit from costs going up. And that was the insurance company, the doctors and hospitals, the drug companies, the PBMs, and me. Because most brokers are paid on commission. And the more that premiums go up, the more money they make. And on the other side of that line, just sat my clients and nobody else. And I wanted really badly to be on the other side of that line with them. And so I had to figure out a way to do that. And I said, well, one way to do that is I could make my compensation much more clear, transparent, number one, and incentivize to be aligned and on that side of the fence with them. And so I changed the way I get paid. And I, first of all, talked about it. We don't talk about how we get paid in my industry. It's a secret that we don't want known, mainly because most of us feel we're being overpaid. Um, but I started to talk about it. And then I started to change the model to a way where I only got paid more money if I actually reduced costs. Now, the problem with that is that most brokers have absolutely no idea how to actually and functionally control costs. And the reason I know that is twofold. Number one, when I ask them questions on things like how is uh, that all relate to how healthcare is paid for, they don't know what the terms are. They don't know what a CPT code is or an ICD-9 or a DRG or an RVU. If you don't know what these things are, which is the exact terminology that's used to pay for care, how can you control those costs? And those costs are what are driving the premiums if you're fully insured or your total spend if you're self-insured. So that was number one realization. The second realization was that most brokers are still recommending the big PPOs and PBMs. And if 80, 85% of the costs are medical and prescription, and you latch on a traditional PPO and a traditional PBM, then the same costs are going out the door no matter what you do. And I always find it funny of the, the misconception that people have that larger businesses pay less for healthcare when they bolted on the same exact PPO network as Joe the plumber did. And so they're subject to the same exact pricing methodologies and utilization metrics that everyone else is. And so when I started to realize how controlling and how um, obtuse the information was around the PPO, I was like, well, what if we got rid of the PPO? And can we ch functionally change the methodology in the way healthcare is paid for? So you were asking before, how do we functionally set this up? And it's really simple, Zeb. I mean, it's 
incredibly simple. We basically create two pathways into the healthcare system for each member, and they can actually choose the pathway mid-care stream they can switch. But pathway number one is kind of the simpler pathway. It's do what you've always done, pay what you've always paid. So we'll set up the benefits to match their current crappy plan. I want doorway number one to be painful. So assuming their plan is in line with the national average, that is cruel and inhuman enough to most of America. I don't need to make that any worse. But what we put on the backside to lower costs to the employer is we get rid of the PPO network, which means we now control the pricing and the utilization. And so what we do is we set up something called a reference-based methodology. We take, instead of this, the traditional PPO network allows for arbitrary starting prices with arbitrary discounts. It's a top-down approach. And one of the ways for PPO networks to say they have a bigger discount is to raise the starting price. And hospitals love raising the starting price and PPOs love raising the starting price and insurance carriers love raising the starting price. So it's easy for me to go out with a message saying that we have a bigger discount than someone else because I can just raise the starting price. So it's, 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 a, it's a completely baseless methodology. So reference-based pricing instead says, let's start with a known starting point and then we'll mark that up if we need to. So we typically start with what would Medicare pay? It's, it's a methodology that we can have access to that is clear cut and is actually based on the hospital and doctor's own self-reported costs that Medicare then marks up to include a profit margin. We then mark that up again. And we typically, I mean, our typical setup is 150% of Medicare for facilities, uh, 140% of Medicare for doctors and providers, which by the way is a raise for them typically. They typically settle around 120 to 130% of Medicare after the PPO discounts. Um, now hospitals, at least this varies even within a state, but in North Carolina, our state, um, the typical hospital pricing after the PPO discounts is around 291% of Medicare. So we're almost cutting that in half. The even bigger value around that is not the reduction in price, although that is important, don't get me wrong. But in my opinion, the larger value is we can audit the bills better. The CMS themselves estimate that 97% of hospital bills have errors. And if this were a video podcast, mm -hmm. you'd see me using my air quotes for the errors because I think it's disingenuous to call it an error when it's almost mm -hmm. always in the favor of the facility. But Regardless, there are things on 97% of bills that weren't done, shouldn't have been done, or were just completely not necessary. Uh, we've seen pregnancy tests on male patients all the time. It's a huge profit center for them, and there's no pre-certification required for a pregnancy test, so it's easy to fly through. The level of audit that we can do when that PPO contract is gone is far greater. So it's not just the lower unit cost. It's also auditing the bill better. But again... That's doorway number one, and that's not our preferred methodology. Our preferred methodology is doorway number two, which, first of all, is no cost to the employees. And that right there means you can't have an HSA. Um, you can't offer dollar one coverage. Um, and so that's one of the many reasons why we don't like HSAs. But so doorway number two is all prearranged, bundled, shared risk arrangements. So the very first thing we put in doorway number two was outpatient surgery. There's, you know, Surgery Center of Oklahoma is kind of the grandfather of this movement where they have all in bundle pricing published on their website with quality and frequency metrics all right there. So we use them as an example, but we don't need our clients to fly to Oklahoma unless they're in Oklahoma. There are places like this around the country that offer upfront bundle pricing. So the bundle pricing is key because it's shared risk. 
in a normal environment, hospitals and doctors make more money. Even in a DRG model, for those that are in the space, you still have providers that don't fall in the DRG. You still have modifiers on the DRG. You still have ways to increase that cost. And so, and there's some shared risk, but it's not true shared risk. In a true bundled payment arrangement, we pay the facility and the provider a, f- a fixed fee regardless of the complications, regardless of the, 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 um, the risk profile of the patient. Um, and what happens is, is that those complications and, and those um, mistakes happen far less often when, when there's a financial incentive for them to not happen. And, and Dave, let me just let me just uh, yeah. ask you this question here. You talk about bundles. So when I think about bundles, I, I think about uh, procedures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hip and knee replacements, uh, back surgery, uh, cardiac bundles around um, heart failure episodes in the hospital, you know, so sort of a time limited as well from, say, an admission to uh, 90 days afterwards. So are you if you were as you build this. Uh, and, uh, and I, I really just want to, you know, underscore that. So this is not academic or hypothetical. Uh, we're, you're, you're now talking about what you actually right. do. Um, so, uh, w- when you build these though, I mean, do you build, uh, you know, dozens of bundles because it's, you know, you got to cover lots of different conditions. And then what about primary care mm. and, 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 and specialty care that don't fall into a 90 day episode. And so I'm just curious about how you, how you do the bundles yeah. and, 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 and yeah. So we started off with bundles and really just outpatient, even more specifically. Um, we then moved to inpatient bundles, cardiac, things like that were easy to do. Um, the next evolution was medication. So we were able to source 1500 maintenance medications, some domestically, some internationally, outside of the traditional pharmacy and PBM channels for between 30 and 70% less expensive. So we made those medications no cost to the members. Adherence rates went up significantly as a result. Then we entered in uh, disease management programs. So if you're a diabetic and you're engaged with a clinical nurse manager that is helping fill in all your gaps in care, ensuring that you're going to see the right specialists, making sure that you're checking your blood sugars. Um, and sometimes we even give out um, blood glucose monitors with a cellular modem built in so that the nurse manager gets a notification every time a blood test is done or every time a blood test is not done. Um, if, if the member is engaged in that program, then all of their care around that disease state is covered at 100%. It's part of that doorway number two. We're, I actually have a call tomorrow with a recognized substance abuse facility where we are trying to finalize a deal on relapse warranties on substance abuse treatment. Um, so I think that's going to be kind of innovative. I don't know of anyone else that has even thought to do that. Um, now, another thing that we put in uh, to that doorway number two is a mandatory second opinion program on all musculoskeletal and oncological. We know that the um, unnecessary care and, and misdiagnosis rates are exceptionally high in those two areas. And we have found um, a significant reduction in invasive procedures and costs by doing a mandatory second opinion. Um, so we engage doc, you know, some of the top doctors around the country, all of whom will not ever do the procedure on the patient. So they literally have no financial skin in the game one way or the other. And we find here are the statistics on the second opinion. 82% of the time, the course of treatment is substantially altered, 90% of which is a less invasive, less costly path. 40% of the time, the diagnosis has changed as a result of that second opinion. And we see it very high in cancer. That's not, 
not only to say, well, you were told you had this type of cancer, but you actually have this other type of cancer. And had you started the treatment, the first doctor told you it would have been ineffective. But we've actually seen where people turned out to not have cancer, even though they were diagnosed with it. How can that be? Um, so that's <laughs> there's a lot of reasons. First of all, in the oncological world, mm-hmm. the money is made in treating cancer. The money is made in, in dispensing and infusing the chemo and the radiation and doing the surgical procedures. And if they don't have cancer, then none of those things apply. But what's even worse is most providers are paid in that model in a cost plus model. So if, if they get a 10 or 20% markup on the cost of the drug for infusing it, and one drug is $4,000 and one drug is $40,000, even though clinically they're, they have the same efficacy, which one is the doctor going to gravitate towards? Mm-hmm. So getting that second opinion where there's no financial skin in the game allows us to get a much more real sense. And really, it empowers the patient. We give that second opinion to the patient and we say, okay, look, this is your information. If you choose to follow it, your employer is going to pay for what that second opinion recommended in full. If you choose to go the route of the initial doctor or your own route, then um, then you're going to be subject to your normal out-of-pockets. Um, so we leave them no worse off than they would have been had they stayed with their Blue Cross United Signet in the plan and don't listen to us. But we're arming them with information, Zev, and that's really what it comes down to. We never say go here. What we say is here's a couple of options that have better outcomes and lower costs to you if you go there. What do you want to do? And we even do it at the MRI level. When In our plans, when a pre-cert comes in on MRI from, from a doctor, we pend that not for the purpose of determining medical necessity. We presume the doctor did that. I mean, heck, that's their job. Um, it's to give us the opportunity to say to call that member up and say, you know, member, where you are going to go is going to cost you $1,800 out of your deductible. But we found a place three miles away that's going to cost you nothing because it's 400 bucks instead of 4000 bucks. Um, and if you go there, we'll push the orders over for you. We'll make sure the results go back to your primary doctor and it'll cost you nothing. So we do put in a bunch of carrots and sticks. That's an example of a stick. The carrot is the zero out of pocket, but not, you know, the system sucks you in very easily and then puts you down a path that benefits the system very easily. And so we, we find that we have to constantly be inserting ourselves, but really when you give the right incentives and the right information to the patient, we find that more often than not, they do the right thing. So so, David, the theme here is, and so I'm doing a little bit of a compare and contrast. The theme here is in the high deductible health plan approach that is uh, currently, you know, being used and gaining more and more traction amongst employers. You know, in that mode, it, it's it's you know, again, the, the the high deductible. So there's an initial large outlay of uh, money that the for everything, for everything that the well except for with the exception of yeah. certain preventive, right? preventive and so so you know there is a disincentive um for for individuals to spend that money because it's coming out of their pockets and so that's the idea is that they're the idea right. is and, and i think it's a you know uh, euphemism that's you know it used to be called at least a consumer directed health plan because there's skin in the game on the part of the mm-hmm. employee slash patient uh, to make wise decisions and that's the that's the mechanism or theory behind this high deductible health plan is that you'll get more appropriate care, lower you know lower utilization in a good way. Um, but what you're saying is uh, you're, you're coming at this, and and again I'm going to ask you what your thoughts are about the high deductible plan, NHS, and uh, and health savings because I want I, you know that this is really 
picking up steam, right? I mean, more and more employers are using that uh, high deductible and then high deductible with HSA. And um, so I want to hear your cr- critique of that. But you're you're coming at this from a different way. You're saying the employer is going to pay for this and, and the employee doesn't have to pay for this. The way we're going to, in, instead of, you know, uh, imposing uh, the cost on the individual and we're actually going to, uh, if they go the route of a more informed consumer, and we're going to inform them, inform them with a bunch of mechanisms where we're going to uh, send them to uh, providers that have worked out a bundle, so are highly efficient, have great outcomes, because uh, that's the nature of uh, bundles. Uh, we're going to get second opinions, which will uh, provide them more information about better care. We're going to provide them with lower cost uh, you know, uh, diagnostics like MRIs and CAT scans, um, again, equal efficacy, equal safety, equal outcomes, just a lower cost. And so instead of, you know, using a, a hammer, we're just, we're going to guide them. Um, and they're not going to have to pay for it because in the end, and tell me if I'm getting this correct, where you're going in the end, it'll actually cost less to the employer to do it that way than it does any other way. Am I catching on to what you're saying? Or? That's the, you're, you're getting there. I actually think the damage is more far reaching than what you alluded to. Um, first of all, if I, all that a HSA is, I refer to it as the single most damaging strategy that we as an industry have ever unleashed on the poor, unsuspecting American public. And the reason I feel that way is it's become a big cost shift to the employee. It's become a big middle finger of from the employer to the employee. And it's the tool of the empl- of the broker that doesn't know how to control the underlying healthcare costs. So, and, and that the evidence is clear. The HSAs are extreme or the high deductible health plans are extremely profitable for the carriers. More and more employers are adopting it. And yet we're not seeing any change in trend lines. So what good is it actually doing? But think about it from the employee's perspective. If I have a three or a five or even, I mean, a $12,000 family deductible, which for, come on, 98% of America is, it might as well be a $12 million deductible. Um, how do I access care? For something small. Let's talk about something small. I need an MRI. I can't get a price up front. See, the problem with the, the, the concept of the HSA or the HDHP is that I don't have access to that information. How can I be a good consumer when I can't get the two most basic things I need to be a consumer, which is price and quality? So, sorry for interrupting, but yeah. let me just, uh, you know, I got to throw in the counter sure. uh, argument to that is what about the things like, you know, Castlight yeah. and other, uh, you, you know, uh, pricing? You're, okay, you're laughing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what would you say to yeah. that argument that, that, that there is information? Well, first of all, they're highly inaccurate, but let's assume for a minute that I need something more significant. I need a hip replacement, okay? And my out-of-pocket is pick a number, $5,000, okay? And I go on to one of those price transparency tools, which we know in the normal environment has exceptionally low uh, utilization rate. But I'm one of the people that says, hey, I care about cost, and I have a lot of skin in the game, so I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And what I find is two hospitals near me. One of them is $20,000. The other one is $40,000 for a hip replacement. I argue that most people, it's that that transparency in the standard environment where I have to pay $5,000 to either place is going to actually drive people to the higher cost place because they're going to presume better. that the higher yeah. cost place is better. And I'm paying five grand either way. 
So I argue that cost transparency in the models that have existed actually drive costs up. Not Maybe not so much on the small stuff, but the small stuff is not what's driving our spend. It's the big stuff. And so when you put cost transparency into my model and essentially say, well, go to that $20,000 place and your employer is going to pay 100% of it, the employer in the other model with a $5,000 out of pocket would have paid $35,000 of the forty. In my model, they pay 20000 of the twenty. Which would you rather pay? And you left right. your employee owing absolutely nothing. And, and, and the twenty to 40000 variation is actually probably smaller than it really is. I know in my own hernia surgery, locally, it was 9000 to 47000 after the PPO discounts. Surgery Center of Oklahoma was $3,060. And for any clinicians on the phone, let me also tell you that my surgeon – Got 1200 bucks for that surgery versus 800 when he does it in the traditional system through the traditional PPO network. And places like Surgery Center of Oklahoma are so efficiently run that he's able to do four to five hernia repairs in a morning, whereas in a, the regular hospital, he would have done one. So 50% higher reimbursement rate, four to five times the volume. The doctors love this environment too. And we know that doctors are really beat down just by evidence of the fact that they are mm -hmm. the number one suicide rate in the United States right now and have been for several years. So this helps doctors too. Well, the doctor, the doctors that are that'll set up a program like this, essentially a, a, a bundled program, yeah. Yes. And and yeah, it's and it's right. It may be, you know, and who are willing to put their cost and quality metrics on the line. Exactly, and it, and again, they're confident. You know, I think when we talk about doctors, it's you know, and I think the literature supports this. It's about the system. Um, if you set the system up right, uh, most uh, people will will work well in that system. If the system's set up wrong. Uh, it's very hard to to do well in that system, so it's you get what you what you set up that way. So, so this is fascinating. So it's really so. What other? So you mentioned a number of you got the bundles. You've uh, got second opinions. You're uh, directing people to alternative uh, areas or or options that are lower cost, um, and, but but uh, same or even better quality. What other mechanisms? And so, for instance, what happens with uh, primary care? How do you how do you structure primary care or specialty care? Yeah, so primary care in particular um, is you know foundationally something that is probably the most broken within the delivery model. Um, and and just for the again, uh, you probably have a wide audience of people, but if you think back to primary care twenty years ago, it was largely independent doctors um, and you know, they were given fair reimbursement rates. But as the networks developed and as costs increase, the carriers wanted to remain as competitive in the marketplace as they could compared to their competitors. So they were trying to push costs down where they could. And they couldn't do it to the large hospitals. They couldn't do it to the large multi-specialty practices. And they certainly couldn't do it to pharma. So the, the independent primary care doctors were easy targets. And so they started to push down those reimbursement rates. But the doctor's malpractice insurance didn't go down and his payroll didn't go down. So what did those doctors do? They started to see more patients and bill for more services to compensate. Mm -hmm. And what developed was what we have today, which is seven minutes average visit, 14 or 17 days before the appointment. And they're a churning factory. And what amplified that was the health systems, the hospitals started to say, wait a second. These primary care doctors, they can be loss leaders for us. They can be the milk at the back of the store. We can use them to steer the patients into the more profitable and more expensive parts of our system. And so they started to buy up these practices that were losing money. 
And they sold the doctor on saying, we're going to do all your billing and all your back office and we're going to give you a salary and da 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 da. And um, so the doctors bought in. Well, then the hospital comes and says, okay, well, now you have to refer out 50 consults to an orthopedist a month and 20 consults to an oncologist and 100 MRIs or whatever the metrics were that fed their business model. And that's all that they became was a feeder into the system. And that made the unnecessary surgeries and specialty medications and I think even fundamentally contributed to the opioid epidemic. To what we have today, which is a, a broken system, and, it, and it, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What does everything look like to an orthopedic surgeon? It looks like orthopedic surgery. So if you if you are so just fed up with the primary care system, and you go right to the orthopedic surgeon, the likelihood of you having orthopedic surgery goes up significantly. And so in a in a fixed primary care model, one in which the doctors are compensated differently, we we believe in a capitated model where unnecessary care pulls from their profit instead of adds to their profit. When you pay them in a way that allows them to have smaller patient panel sizes, what it does, it gives them something they haven't had in decades, and that's time. Time to spend with their patients, time to diagnose them. Yeah, no, this is, yeah, I, I you know, I think the capitated model is, you know, has got some great attributes to it. So do you, do you structure this then for an employer, do you find a, um, a, a group of primary care physicians, a provider group, or and, and set up a capitated sort of uh, primary care bundle with them? Or how do you do that? Well, so there's a movement going on right now called direct primary care, DPC for short. And mm-hmm. DPC is largely made up of doctors that were so beat down by the other system that they said, forget it. I'm leaving the system. I'm going to charge my patients a flat monthly fee, and that's going to cover all their care. Mm-hmm. And we look for those doctors. Um, they're not concierge doctors. I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. you know, Webster's Dictionary definition of these terms. But in my mind, a concierge doctor charges a very high fee and still bills your insurance. A direct primary care doctor charges a low fee and never, ever, ever bills insurance. And one of the models that I really struggle to support is a doctor who's running a hybrid practice, one in which they're still accepting fee for service, but they're also accepting a monthly fee from some of their members. Because if you're one of the members paying a monthly fee and you walk into the fee for service office, you're going to get fee for service treatment and care. So we look for the pure DPC doctors Mm -hmm. and we go to them and say, great, we have an employer. They have 40 employees, 100 employees, 1,000 employees near you. Uh, and then we create the incentives and the plan for the members to want uh, to go there. How do you? So, so a couple of questions about that. And and I'm uh, you know I'm familiar with DPCs, and I, I assume um, many of uh, the listeners are. But the direct primary care. How do you? Number one, um, what would be the the answer to the concern about you know if they're on a capitated model? aren't they incented to do less? So let's just take that one. Cause that's, a, I mean, it's an old question, but it's still, I'm sure lingering. Well, yes. I mean, we should want as little care as possible. That should be the goal. So I have zero problem with that. Do I think any doctor is not going to provide care that is medically necessary? No, I haven't seen that. I mean, how long have doctors spent in medical school and, and even younger than that of dreaming about being a doctor I don't think they ever dreamt about not providing care to patients that really needed it. I don't think that was part of that vision. Mm-hmm. So I just don't believe that's a problem. Right. And are the doctors, uh, are the doctors, primary care doctors, I mean, 
The, you know, access is, you know, part of the answer to that question would be one of the things that employers want for their employees is access to primary care, easy access, convenient access, uh, you know, access is, uh, you know, on off hours and on weekends. So I imagine that that's probably built into the contract, this capitated contract with a direct primary care. There's virtual care options. So mm-hmm. can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. So we, we've engaged the virtual care. You have um, guys like Keith from United Concierge Medicine, or you got whole health plans built around it, like Redirect Health that's owned by Dr. David Berg in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and But but really, the, this DPC model is is getting a ton of traction. It's actually really exciting what's going on. And I, I have actually gotten some doctors to flip. I've gone to them and said, let me show you how much better your life will be and can be when you do this. Yeah. Um, and I mean, most of those primary care doctors are spending 80% of their time on paperwork. It's like absurd. Right. So getting them to flip over now, especially when I have an employer that can bring them 40, 50, 100, 200 patients instantaneously right. and make them profitable from day one, we de-risk that for them pretty significantly. Yeah. And I think that's probably, you know, I think that's what DP, the, the direct primary care doctors want and need is those large contracts of the, you know, getting, as you say, a bolus of patients that they can begin their practice and have, uh, you know, have uh, uh, essentially a monthly, you know, salary revenue coming in. What about, and, and the doctors, I mean, just again, I want to, I just want to kind of put this issue to rest and make sure, you know, we talk about it. The, mm-hmm. the doctors are not incented. It would seem to me around, um, or are they around, let's say referrals to specialists are, are uh, to decrease them. I, I mean, to, if I'm a DPC doctor, do I make, uh, less if my patient goes to a specialist. So am I incented to try to do as much as I can myself or how does that work? Um, say that one more time for me, Seth. Sorry. So, you know, again, I think, you know, one of the, one of the arguments against capitation and this is going back, uh, in, I think the, the wave of capitation that happened, uh, you know, in the eighties, um, you know, this one argument was, you know, you're going to withhold care because uh, the doctors only get paid a certain amount if they spend it um, and it goes over the amount they made, they're going to lose money. And so in the DPC, you know, how, how is that issue gotcha. dealt with? Well, I think the, and does it ever come up in your experience? So I think the problem with the capitated model of the eighties, which really what you're referring to is HMOs. I mean, at, at least as the public would know it, um, mm-hmm. is that it applied to all care. It is really hard to build a capitated model around cancer or, um, you know, major disease states. And then look at the cost of these specialty drugs. They're just absolutely out of control. I actually think that primary care is the right model to do it in because it's highly predictable. Mm -hmm. It is very low cost by comparison to those other things and doesn't have anything that would ever in a primary care model be $100,000. It just doesn't exist in that space. And but but yet when you build that foundation properly, you reduce the need for those things that might lead to that hundred thousand dollar a month drug or that major surgery or that emergency room visit. Mm-hmm. It even fixes mental doesn't fix, it improves mental health significantly. I mean, primary care doctors are perfectly trained to deal with mild anxiety, depression. You don't need to go to a specialist mm-hmm. for those things. You don't need to go to an endocrinologist if you're pre-diabetic. For type two, anyway. I mean, and but we go right to those specialists, so um, it reduces the need for that. We typically see an increase in primary care spend when we do this model from what they were spending before. But again, just look at—we spend around four percent, five percent of our dollars in our in this healthcare system on primary care. 
whereas most other countries spend 15 to mm-hmm. 20% on primary care. We're underfunding primary right. care right now. So I, I don't believe in it. I think a capitated model, when you, ca- when you capitate the member as opposed to the procedure, we do capitated on procedures all the time. That's what the bundles right. essentially are. But when you're doing it on an episodic basis, it's much easier to predict. But when you're trying to do a capitated model on an entire member for an entire year or longer, that's much trickier. So let's put the right foundation in. Let's capitate that, which is going to reduce the the need for the other stuff. Right. I got it. That's great. Folks, we're going to pause the interview here and end the first half of this interview with David Contorna. I am so sorry for having to break it up into two parts. It was so informative and such an engaging interview. I think for both of us, um, it went on for literally uh, over two hours. So I decided to create a part one and a part two, although it's uh, just a continuation of one conversation or one interview. Um, I will post the second half in the next uh, uh, posting of the podcast series. So it should be out uh, within a week or two. Um, I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from this and uh, please follow up and listen to the second half of this interview. It's going to be pretty juicy. Um, David gets into discussing how he manages um, and contains medication costs. We're going to talk about PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. Um, he's got a very interesting approach to this. Uh, we'll discuss high deductible health plans and HSAs, uh, health saving accounts. Um, and again, he's got a very divergent view on this. And we'll hear uh, David Contorno's prediction for the next three to five years of health care. Also quite interesting. And I think what will come out in the second interview is really um, a picture of the courageous path that David has taken in his career in becoming um, really a divergent and uh, value-based employee health benefits broker, um, something quite different. And um, it, it was really, I think, in, in the second half of this interview, quite quite touching and um, critically important. I think he shares some really important work with us and, and ideas and thoughts in, in the second half as well. So, so again, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast as always. And I do want to thank those of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting uh, providers and in, in, in taking care of patients. Um, and until next time, be well.